All right, this opening will require my phone. Let me find it. Okay, volume. This Tuesday, 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 join us at the Film is Lit Thunderdome for the weekly book burning. That's right, we're burning your favorites. We're burning Austin. We're burning Vonnegut. We're burning J.K. Rowling. That's okay now, because she's canceled. Which is a, which is what the book's about. <laughs> Canceling people. Cancel culture. We'll get into that. That's right. The book burning's gonna be hot. It's gonna be bright. And most importantly, it's gonna make you happy. Fade out. No, just a hard cut off of that. That's YouTube and putting my phone on silent. Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. Did you like that opening? I wasn't prepared for it and I would have put a stop to it if I had not You would have stopped that? Book burning ad. <laughs> well, it's a tie-in to the book and movie we're covering anyways. Joke too, right? No, it's, I'm burning some books. <laughs> I'm a pyro, baby. <laughs> My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. Pronouns he, him. I am Laura, and I am the literature expert. She, her. Thanks for normalizing pronouns, because I have forgotten to do it in the past. You got it, B. Let's get started. We have a barn burner. I said that before, oh, no. but the burn pun applies here. And actually applies for the movie, because they burn a barn they in do. the movie. That's very accurate. <laughs> Not in the book. But today, we are covering Ray Bradbury's classic Fahrenheit 451. And it's 2018 adaptation of the same name. Now, the, the 2018 adaptation is an HBO film. And I want to clarify now that there are movies that from the ground up are produced by streaming services. And then there are movies that are made and no studio buys them to be distributed in theaters. How would someone get money to do that if they... Well... Like, production companies are separate entities, so they they oh, put up the money. And then, essentially, studios, if it's not a studio film, okay. studios still buy movies from production companies oh, okay, to it. distribute. And then also production companies pay studios. To, it's like, it's a whole kind of cyclical okay, I just financial relationship. But, so, okay, so there are movies that, from the ground up, are streaming service movies. And then there are movies that are produced, but no studio is interested for whatever reason, and then a streaming service buys them. Right. And that was the case with this movie, which kind of indicates its quality, that yeah. no studio was interested in HBO, which produces great stuff, and they have some great original movies too. But this is a case where it wasn't in, from the ground up HBO production. They just bought it, and mm -hmm. yeah, it kind of... No one's really talking about this movie two years later, but no. yeah. I remember seeing a lot of adverts for it. I think I maybe saw a billboard, mm -hmm. but I don't remember a lot of hype. Yeah, no. The hype died down pretty Which, and quickly. I, I would have listened to hype because this has been one of my favorite books since I read it. And so I think I would have remembered getting excited about this movie if I had heard of it. Right. Yeah. No, it's just kind of a... Spoiler alert, it's a stinker. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not great. It's not awful. Well, it kind of is because it's, yeah. it's just a jumbled mess. 
totally unfocused. It's I didn't feel as personally offended as with 112263. <laughs> but at the same time, it did really feel like the director was trying to say way too much and took advantage. I almost felt worse for the actors in this movie because Michael B. Jordan, incredible. In the past, I haven't enjoyed everything he's been in, but I think in this movie, he really killed it. And Michael... Shannon. Shannon, who is also an incredible actor, a huge fan of his. I think he does a great job in this movie too, but I kind of felt bad that they had to be involved in this project because if they hadn't been in it, I think it would have been an even worse flop. (laughs) Yeah. The movie just adds so much and in doing so, it doesn't capitalize on any of the new ideas it brings to it and it's just just very bland and it, it turns into every single dystopian movie adaptation that are out these days. I mean, it has shades of 1984. I mean, the movie basically is 1984. Obviously, our main protagonist is a fireman like in the book and his boss is Captain Beatty. Mm -hmm. But the movie is more of an authoritarian. Did I say that right? (laughs) Uh, Authoritarian government that is surveying it's surveilling, surveilling its <laughs> citizens mm-hmm. whereas in the, america in america where the book is much more about the censorship angle and this pursuit of knowledge where the movie is much more interested in kind of the supposedly super sexy parts of dystopian books like a rebel uprising like a but the book is not about the rebels Right. I think part of what's such a bummer about the movie is that it takes a lot of what was special about the book and, like you said, made it very generic dystopia-esque. And something that I really pulled out of the book that was very interesting is actually how forward-looking it is Mm -hmm. and how prescient it is, especially, obviously, in this day and age with Fox News and Trump-topia that America has become. And I just think that if they had leaned into that, it would have been very successful in the current climate. But because they sort of glossed over all of that and added a lot of stuff, like, for example, the little Alexa that's in the movie called... Yuxi. Yuxi? Or Yuxi? So that's not something that Ray Bradbury thought of or really could conceptualize, I think, in 1951, which is when the book was published. But by adding that to the movie and adding that surveillance piece, it didn't add anything Yeah. thematically. I think it just, like you were saying, it introduced a big brother theme, which like Danny again was saying, that's not so much developed in this book. I think that would be a very appropriate substitute in a 1984 adaptation. Yeah. But because surveillance isn't huge in this book, in fact, it's very much that the government relies on other citizens to tattle mm-hmm. on other citizens, which is very sinister yeah, and scary. <laughs> that, I think, would have been more powerful in an adaptation. But anyway, I don't know. Do you want to take a step back and do journeys yeah. at this time? Okay. Do you want For to do sure. first since you went last episode? Yeah, absolutely. So my journey with Fahrenheit 451 was back either in high school or college. I was trying to remember that. I remember very clearly starting it on, I think, Christmas morning (laughs) because Mm. 
I was reading it in the car between LA and San Francisco, which is where my grandma lives and we always spend Christmas. So I remember starting it in the morning after getting into the car and then literally finishing it when we got into San Francisco. And my mind was like totally blown. My concept of knowledge and intellect and all these things were, you know, questioned. And so I just absolutely loved the book. I've actually only read it twice. This was my, only my second time reading it for whatever reason. I don't know why. It just sort of existed in this perfect bubble for me, mm-hmm. I think. And rereading it now was interesting because there was a lot that I noticed that kind of bugged me about the book. And I think it's just the result of the time period in which it was written. But I was pretty disappointed with the lack of female characters. <laughs> and when there was a female character, she was very obnoxious and underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, the it was like it was like Ray Bradbury had never met a, an intelligent woman. Every mm-hmm. single and, and I'm not exaggerating, every single author or philosopher that Ray Bradbury writes as, you know, an incredible pillar of knowledge to the human race was white Mm -hmm. (laughs) and male. You know, he he mentions Thomas Jefferson, slaveholder. He mentions Henry David Thoreau, super racist. He mentions like all of these men. uh, and, And, you know, he mentions Shakespeare and all these people. But it's, it was just such a bummer to have this completely whitewashed version of literature mm-hmm. be and, and the Bible and stuff like that. There's just completely whitewashed history being the only history to be reintroduced by the white men who are the only people who are reintroducing literature and knowledge back into the human history. So sure. I think that was that was honestly a little bit tough on this reread. And obviously, I've only seen the movie once. We just watched it today, in fact. We're coming off it very fresh. So I obviously have a lot of thoughts about the movie, but that's the end of my journey. How about you? Sure, yeah. It is unfortunate. Ray Bradbury has apologized decades later for the lack of strong female characters. And I don't think Guy Montag is... I don't think his race is outright said. Mm Mm-hmm. But the other men, they're implied that they are white. Um, and, and I should mention that Clarice is a female with agency, but I, I just, Right. Well, yeah. what I was getting to is, even though Ray Bradbury has apologized for the lack of inclusion of strong female characters or, I guess, more minorities, he has objected strongly to revising or, or censoring his own book because... That, like that was the whole message that he was getting across. So he mm-hmm. sees he sees any interventions as essentially hostile and intolerant, and it's the first step to book burning. So it's kind of a weird paradox where he's like, "Listen, I'm sorry about this years later, but I'm not. I actually can't make any changes to it or retroactive changes because it, yeah. that's what people started doing in my own story is making." changes which is so interesting because if you take yet another step back it's like well if the people who are saving these books and this knowledge are only saving the whitewashed history of things aren't you being revisionist 
by completely saying that no female or person of color has written anything worthwhile, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because then all of that knowledge is then automatically forgotten. Yeah. Like the only thing that these men who Guy Montag comes across in the end of the book are focusing on are men who are white yeah. and waspish. And they're, they're all obviously, there are very obvious religious tones in this as well. So then that means that like only one religion would be introduced back into the human history and that would be Christianity. And it, so it's like hearing that is very discouraging because it's like, well, you did it. You did that mm-hmm. <laughs> to your, you know, dystopia. So yeah. anyway, sorry, we got off. One of the topic. good decisions, the few good decisions that the movie made was casting Michael B. Jordan in the role because mm-hmm. they took advantage of Guy Montag not explicitly being said that he was white or black or, mm-hmm. or whatever, and, and, not, and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So th- that was a good casting decision. But it still doesn't make for a great movie. Anyways, my history story with the book. So it actually starts all the way back in seventh grade. Ooh. Wow. I didn't read the full book in seventh grade, but... The standardized testing in Massachusetts was called the MCAS. Mm. And in seventh grade, one of the prompts I had to write an essay for in the MCAS, I had to respond to a passage in a book. And the passage in my MCAS was of the opening uh, dialogue between Guy and Clarice in Mm -hmm. Fahrenheit 451. And I had no context for this book. I knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I was reading it. And I was just from that short little passage, I was pretty taken by it. And I'm like, wow, I I actually kind of want to seek out this book. And this seems really neat, a future where all art and literature is is banned and there's kind of this unified quote-unquote society that is really uncultured because of that and I remember that MCAS fondly because that was an MCAS where I did really well and I think part of it was because I was really stimulated by the English Mm -hmm. section of of that that passage so so I I liked I liked no well I I was all right in English but (gasps) that particular year I did well but unfortunately I never I never got around to reading it until this pod because as I've said before I'm I'm not a reader Mm -hmm. I'm a cinephile I watch a ton of movies but I did not read the book until this podcast, and I had heard about the movie. I heard that it didn't get great reviews, but I was still intrigued nonetheless. And yeah, read the book, and we watched the movie earlier today, and that's that's my journey. So let's get into it. You say it's one of your favorite books. Why? Well, and yeah, I might honestly have to walk that back a little bit, just because I was so disappointed with the specific content. But overall, I think it just asks a lot of really interesting questions. And like I said, it is very prescient because I think what the book is exploring specifically is power dynamics and how humans are naturally going to seek entertainment and easy answers and why we need to, as a humanity, continuously say no to those easy answers and continuously question source material and source documents and the power dynamics that we have in our own lives and who we listen to. And I think that's a quality that's been lost in America specifically (laughs) for a long time. And I have my own opinions about why that's happened, but I think what ultimately started a domino effect of this lack of questioning 
is just the deprioritization of education from a very young age. So I think, again, applying this book to our current situation is very important. And I actually did some thinking when I was reading this book, and I was sometimes, you know, when you read a book, you don't know what a word means, or you want to look up a passage or something like that. And so there are a couple times where when Guy Montag is reading a book, he'll come across a passage and he's like, I don't know what that means, or I don't know what this is from. And so I would Google it. I'd literally just type it into Google, or I would come across a word I didn't know, and I'd Google the definition. And I was like, you know what? I am getting this information from Wikipedia or Google, where, and these are not peer-reviewed websites or articles like Mm -hmm. what am i i started questioning like why don't i have an encyclopedia in my house you know Mm -hmm. and and so i thought that was really interesting and it started i try to get my information from very balanced websites and newspapers and i don't really watch television that often but news sources in general And I think every once in a while, you just have to reevaluate what you're questioning and what you're mindlessly trusting. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a really good exercise. And in fact, I think this is a good book to sort of revisit every once in a while, just just to shock your system and just to remind yourself that even if you trust someone for a while, their motives can change. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's why this is a really important piece. And again, I I think that's why I'm so frustrated that this movie really failed because I think, you know, I'm not judging anyone who doesn't read a lot, but I do think that for the most part, people enjoy watching things more than reading books nowadays. Yes. It's an easy option and it does provide a lot more entertainment than if you're sitting and reading. And so... If this movie had come out really strong and had almost been so successful that people turned the movie off and said, you know what, I'm going to go read Fahrenheit 451 or I'm going to go read a book, yeah, that would have been so great. I didn't come out of watching the movie feeling like I wanted to do anything other than get frustrated Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it wasn't good, I guess. Yeah, the worst thing the movie does is convince the person who hasn't read the book that the source material is just your standard dystopian Mm. story when it really isn't that at all right i kind of rambled and i think that's exactly what i'm trying to say exactly no i agree i mean especially in america we want things to be simple and positive and we want to be happy and that message came across pretty strong in the book Mm -hmm. and after reading it i start to think of my own life And there are cases like that that were happening all the time where I get into these modes where I just go, I just stick with the simple path or the path of least resistance because I don't want to put in the work or I don't have the motivation to or I like what's simple, what's simple and it makes me happy. But we talked about this on the Martian episode where we had stalled for about half a year before we got this podcast going. And the reason we had stalled was because we were busy, but we also liked watching movies and we liked just hanging out. And it wasn't until the pandemic hit where we had some extra time where we were like, okay, let's actually put in the work 
And of course, it, it, it's going to be a little discomforting for a while since our schedules are going to be packed with what were our jobs and then now this podcast. But once we started doing this, now look at our new breath of routine. Yeah, our new routine, our, our whole now we've read all these books and we've consumed all this new information and we have all these new opinions and the book really reminded me of how you you can't dissolve into the motions you can't life shouldn't be easy the pursuit of knowledge is not easy but when you're doing it you can look back and be proud of your accomplishments right and i think it's also really important to remind yourself that sometimes the sugary candy television is fine, right. you know? We don't always have to be watching stuff like Citizen Kane or Mink, which was amazing. We watched it last night, it was great. And I really can't judge. For example, when the pandemic started, I had probably seen five episodes of The Bachelor and now I've literally watched like 50 seasons of every single Bachelor show in the world. <laughs> So sometimes that's okay. And I think especially when we're in a very stressful situation like a pandemic, sometimes you do honestly need to turn your brain off. Yeah. And that's an important way of like resetting. However, like you were saying, I think because we started this and we started, we we made a conscious choice to pursue something that we really thought had perhaps artistic value or just a little bit of a pursuit of knowledge for the both of us. I think we found a lot of sugary candy television shows and activities that we could cut out yeah. and replace with more a more meaningful and significant activity for the both of us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I didn't mean to like step on your toes, but you didn't mean to burn down my point like a <laughs> uh, fireman. I don't even want to think about. I mean, this book is also very interesting because we have the burning of the book imagery that was obviously very prevalent during World War II. And book burning and knowledge oppression has been, for thousands of years, millennia, has been a way of erasing culture. And I remember, you know, it was on a podcast or it was in a book. I don't remember where I learned this, but I remember learning one time a statistic about how many books were destroyed by the Nazis during World War II. And something like two thirds of all the books in Poland were destroyed. And with the marked intention of destroying Jewish culture and and other cultures as well. And I think when I heard that, it hit me really hard because obviously I'm a huge book lover and I believe that there's a lot of stuff that you can only get from the written word that can't necessarily be substituted with imagery and whatever. So I guess the way that Ray Bradbury creates the imagery of violence against a culture by focusing on the burning of books and eventually the burning of humans who are protecting the books is a very thoughtful way of condemning the mindless following of some kind of oppressive government or oppressive anybody in your life. And a big part of the book is Captain Beatty's speech where he explains why their government currently burns books, why they are firemen. And he was saying that a reason was they started burning books was because people were getting upset by them. Mm -hmm. There were differing opinions and you couldn't please everyone. So instead, let's please no one. By erasing all opinion and all chance of discourse, 
they were trying to unify everyone. They're all sitting in nothing. They're all dealing with nothing. And they're numbed by that nothingness and they don't realize that they're not actually happy until, say, a precocious young teen named Clarice asks them if they're happy, which happens in the book. Clarice asks Guy if he's happy, and Guy actually realizes that, no, he's kind of under a trance. He's never really questioned mm -hmm. his reality because he's had no stimulus. And that's something where I think the movie kind of fails with that dynamic because in the book, there's nothing. They are firemen who burn books, but they go home and they have trashy TV to watch and they have uh, seashells uh, radio to listen to. But in the movie, the dynamic has changed because they have social media, mm -hmm. which was at first I thought would be a good inclusion. But then it's less about a guy realizing that he doesn't have any stimulation. And, and instead, it's about a guy who realizes that he's just a propagandist. Mm -hmm. In the book, he's awakened buy a book mm -hmm. but in the movie he starts out like as like a raving lunatic asshole who is mm -hmm. just talking about how like why it's so great to burn books and he's all like getting likes and stuff like that mm -hmm. but i'm like you've never questioned what you're doing it, it seems weird for him to not look into his own job until he's stimulated one day yeah so i think that kind of came from there are these eye drops Right. right. That people are supposed to take and they're reminded to take by this Alexa stand-in, which we talked about earlier. But the thing that bugged me about that, too, was that we never saw people push back. Like, what are the consequences for not taking the eye drops, I guess? This, this yeah. man, like, we come into Montag's life when he's, let's say, like, 26. He looks like maybe mid-20s, maybe early 30s. But he's never, like you were saying, he's just never questioned, like, since he was a kid, he's been taking these, like, was he forced? Like, I just don't understand, like, how we got to that point. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And in the book, Guy Montag is a blank slate, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what Ray Bradbury was saying with no art. Mm -hmm. There's just nothing to give you a personality. Mm -hmm. All you do is submit because that's all you know. Mm -hmm. But... In the movie, it's different because there's social media and there's, they're, they're almost like celebrities. Firemen are celebrities. And it's like, well, that's, that's an art form in itself. So since you know what art is, how come, even with taking, yeah, even with taking the eye drops, why has he never pushed back against that? It, it's, it's, the eye drops is such an obvious addition by the script of like, ooh, like what's another way that we can justify him not remembering to to push back against the government or him not remembering his past so yeah it was kind of a rather cheap addition i think yeah and i want to go back to Beatty's monologue when montag first comes back and he's sort of a little bit off after right. talking with clarice so it's really interesting it's very manipulative it's very victim blaming and it really demonstrates that ma the majority has found a way to oppress the minority by using their own tactics mm. against them in a way. I Interesting. Think because like you talked about, so he keeps saying that there were so many opinions and he uses the race card. He uses the sexist card and saying like, oh, well, white people weren't happy with this book. So we burned it and that went away. And then black people, well, he actually uses the phrase colored people, but mm -hmm. 
weren't happy with this book, so we burned it and we did away with that opinion. And he even says, we can't have our minorities upset and stirred. And that is very reminiscent of oppression of minorities and, and the ability to divide people rather than bringing people together, right? And say, and like pitting people against each other so that you can't come together and overcome an oppressive government or an oppressive situation. So when he says stuff like that, it, he's telling Montag that, or Montag, sorry, I, I say Montag, but. Well, Montag's like the German <laughs> pronunciation, which you are German and Norwegian. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but, but what he's saying is he's really corrupting the idea that discourse is a healthy thing and questioning motives and questioning authors, questioning philosophers, questioning standing assumptions is a bad thing. He's, he's saying that it's a bad thing, but we know as individuals who have an education that you always need to be questioning those things. And it's also okay for there to be dissonance and it's okay for different opinions to be, to coexist. Mm -hmm. But he perverts that and he says, no, there was so much, people were so unhappy because of this. And I'm telling you that even though you've never experienced that, but just go ahead and trust me that things were bad, right? And that's how he continues to keep like pulling this veil over Montag's eyes. But like you were saying too, like Montag, he knows intrinsically that that can't be true because he's unhappy with the stasis of nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, so the reason he keeps striking out is, like you said, Clarice keeps pushing him to ask, are you happy? Why do you do this? Stuff like that. And yeah, again, I, I, that goes back to my argument that it's always good to keep questioning things, because if you don't work them out for yourself, I think you end up in Guy's situation where he's like, oh, crap, I don't know anything for myself. That's why I think the inclusion of social media in the movie was wrong for the story because with social media that means everyone gets an opinion you get to post what you're thinking right. and yeah. like the whole point of the society was that people don't have opinions right. so if this government were to theoretically rise up in america I think the first thing they would do is eliminate social media they of course would have an internet like mm -hmm. say the most realistic tie in today's world is like North Korea. They, they have an internet, but everything that comes out is monitored by the government. It's all mm -hmm. propaganda. And people don't get the chance to talk online of being like, I like this person and I don't like this person. I mean, that's the whole deal in that dictatorship. Un unfortunately, it's a terrible situation, but... That's why the movie, the whole, the social media, I mean, obviously it makes it relevant for modern times, but at the same time, if you think about it, you're like, oh, that wouldn't, social media would not work in this society. Yeah, I, I think this is a difficult book to adapt. Yeah. And I think sometimes sci-fi can be like that in general because, especially a book that was written in 1951, because there's a lot of forward thinking that Bradbury had to do. And in fact, I was actually really impressed by, so the seashells that you talked about earlier or the ear thimbles, I was like, dude, ear pods. Yeah. Right? And the way that every single wall is 
basically a screen. Yeah. Is like very, I mean, you know, we've got a huge flat screen TV in our apartment. It basically takes up like the wall. Yeah, that's that's, that's how we're our, doing financially. <laughs> Just no. kidding. It was a gift <laughs> from a show I worked on. <laughs> but our living room is centered around the television. Yeah. And that is the center of the room. And when Ray Bradbury was writing, I don't know, was there colored TV in 1951? <laughs> I don't know. But, but think about the difference between screen size at yeah. least. So he was able to predict that screens would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's very interesting. But to me, I think you're right. Like they, they tried to vault this these concepts into a very media savvy world. I think that they if they had stuck with the parameters that Ray Bradbury worked with in 1951, it would have been a little bit more true to what he was trying to say about how everything has been taken offline except for what the oppressive government wants you to hear. Right. And exactly like you were saying, because they had access to the social media, everyone was still able to have an opinion. Yeah. Sorry, I, I guess maybe I'm no, restating, but... No, you're buttressing but my point. <laughs> I, I, I almost wish that... I kept honestly conceptualizing this book as an animated piece. Interesting. Because cool. I, I think sometimes with sci-fi the default is to make everything look so cool and so yeah. futuristic. And at this point in 2020, our world is pretty damn futuristic. You know, mm -hmm. we've got cell phones that do everything for us. We've got massive televisions. We've got AirPods that aren't even attached to strings. Yeah. And <laughs> we, in a lot of ways, live in the future that these sci-fi writers were couldn't even conceive of. Yeah. You know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And I think that sometimes it's best to scale back and think about these things were sci-fi because they couldn't quite happen. And sometimes it's good to like reset our brains and think about like, well, what would we do without the internet? Yeah. That's a really good question. Exactly. Yeah. So, so put a little bit of parameters on a dystopian situation and I think you'll find yourself a little bit more at home. I think a lot of dystopias are made stronger because obviously like there are restrictions. And I, I just didn't see a lot of restrictions in the world that they built for Montauk, except for surveillance, which we are also sort of living in creepily enough. I mean, we've talked about like how our phones listen to us, obviously. Yeah, this sounds like we're crazy conspiracy theorists here, but I, I'm sure all of you can relate by this story. So yesterday, Laura and I were talking about alcohol for that we want to stock up for our wedding. Right. And then we got into the story of tequila specifically. And then we both had separate stories about how at bars we had ordered Patron for friends, not realizing that Patron is like $20 a shot. Yeah. So learning the hard way how expensive Patron is. Yeah. Today on YouTube, I've never gotten this ad before in my life. For the first time, I got an ad on YouTube for Patron. Coincidence? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Abs absolutely not. Literally zero. And this is, that. everyone has this type of story yeah. where this has happened, where you've said something and your phone was like in another state. <laughs> and then the next day you get an ad on your phone for that exact thing you're talking about. And you've never said that thing before in your life and all of a sudden it shows up in your phone. So 
that would have been a cooler thing to see happen in the movie. Well, it does happen in the movie, but it's an example of piss poor writing. So the reason in the movie that Guy gets found out that he's either hoarding books or reading literature is that so he steals a book from that the house that they burn that woman's house so that's the same in the book that is, is in the movie he steals a book but since they have these yuxies or whatever the heck the alexas he tells it to go dark meaning that so. that it's not looking at him but obviously i mean it's a movie obviously it's still listening obviously yeah but then he reads out loud to no one to no one because he's not married like he is in the book right and oh fun fact about that in the original production they shot mildred oh. they shot her scenes the actress's name was laura harrier laura <laughs> great name uh she was the harrier than who <laughs> she was the love interest in black klansman oh yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Um, they did film that, but her role was completely cut out of the film for pacing reasons, which is funny because at an hour 40, this film still feels like it's three hours long. Oh my god. The pacing, pacing is way off. I, I was fidgeting, so I was literally pacing the room. I could not sit down because I was just like, I can't follow this plot. I can't really connect to the characters. I don't care about this movie. I just want to go eat a cheeseburger. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> or two. A or grilled two. cheese. No, I, I just, I was so, there were so many pacing issues. It dragged and dragged and dragged. Yeah. So yeah, Mildred is not in the movie, which, but. And she serves to discover what he's trying right. to hide. Rather yeah. than having this surveillance, which is obviously going to keep recording. Sure. Even if you call it dark mode. Yeah. Say dark mode. So yeah, in the movie, he says, Yuxi, go dark mode or whatever and then and so it's not watching him but of course it's still listening and then again out loud he reads the part of notes from the underground underground which coincidentally is about a man struggling with his own existence like and it's also not the book that he picks up in the book book he picks up the bible right? right one of the last existing copies of the bible which is cool but yeah, so it reads out loud to no one the that part of Notes from the Underground where he says, like, two times two can sometimes be five, which is nice, or something like that. And then Yuxi is just like, no, two two times two can never be five. It should and be like, his first clue that she's still listening. Right. And, well, Obviously. Yeah, right. so that's an example of the dumb writing in the movie. Well, another example is when he's picked up by the eels, which are the rebels and and they say the word eels about a million times in the movie but it's never explained why like why are they called that why is that label i guess like they're like slippery and they're i don't know uh but (laughs) sorry yeah (laughs) the the rebels in the movie are called the eels and at this point in the story guy has turned and is now wanting to work for them to read books and work on Omnis, which we'll get to Omnis, whatever the heck that is. Save your energy for that. I'll go off on that, speaking of poor writing. Right, but yeah, so now he's meeting up with the rebels and Clarice, which her character is completely changed for the movie. Now she's like working for the eels and is in cahoots with... Mm -hmm the fireman for like giving them information on where to find more books so she'd get time off her sentence that's a whole 
other thing, very cliche. But the eels pick Guy up in front of the fire station. So right in front of where he works were the only other people who could crack down on, on the eels were also there. So mm -hmm. that's another stupid thing. Why would they meet at the most obvious open place to meet? Literally meet, an open parking lot. Meet <laughs> behind an alley like to, to pick them up. Or behind a bush. Right. Don't go in in front of the front door of the firehouse. And all that, uh, the, so the reason that was in the movie was to, so his co-worker could see him and then report him. Yeah. So that that's the whole reason. It's that backwards writing, that, which we've talked about before. So dumb. Can I talk about Omnis? Yeah, go ahead. Literally, mind-blowingly stupid this was. So this is another movie edition. So in the book, in one of the opening scenes... Montag and his troopers have been called to a house where books have been reported and the woman who lives in the house decides to burn in the house with her books rather than leave. And so in the movie, they come across this house, there's been a tip, they find this massive library and the woman is in the house and she also decides to kill herself by burning herself with the books. Now, the thing that's so strange about the movie, they make this addition where she says the word omnis as she's catching on fire. And, you know, okay, uh, clearly this is a code or this is something that is a society or something is what the audience is supposed to pick up. But in the next scene, we find out that Beatty's boss, basically, had no idea what this was. The, the oppressive government, the oppressive American government has no idea what this word means. So they change the video that they took of this woman burning herself to say coward instead of ominous. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, but listen, we have to keep this top secret because we have to figure out what this means. And then they do in like a minute. Yeah. And they realize that it's like this online software that all of the eels are collecting information to then sort of disseminate to the rest of the world so they can sort of retake the government with all of this knowledge. Well, it's that's another failing of the movie because I actually don't know. They're using software to code DNA and what they're putting in okay, DNA. This, this completely lost. Yeah, me, what, I honestly don't even know. What, whoa, whoa, wait, should I just finish? Can I just finish my thought about honest? Okay. okay. Sorry. So basically the poor writing is that they wouldn't have figured out that Omnis was a thing if she hadn't said that word. Right. <laughs> and they didn't torture her to get this word. She was literally lighting herself on fire and then she said omnis for no reason. Yeah. Knowing that these firefighters are there to destroy knowledge. And like the rebels or the eels, which are much more centralized and organized in the movie than the book. In the book, they're just sort of like this underground, very fractured coalition Group of, of like people. traveling hermits. They're, well, yeah, yeah. And they're called homeless or hobos, I guess, in the book, which again, isn't super PC nowadays. But in the movie, they're very centralized and they have this plan. So it's just so confusing. Like, why would she give away that plan if she's sacrificing herself for the overall mission like, right why would you do that because like you assume that the reason that she's committing suicide is to protect the knowledge that because they they later reveal that she's memorized john steinbeck's the grapes of wrath mm -hmm. so you assume that she's protecting that knowledge and that 
she knows that she'll probably be tortured to give up the other people. But then she just fucking says the word. Yeah. That's like the key to the whole fucking thing. And then, and then all the firefighters figure out somehow that like this house is where they're hiding out and they're hiding the Omnis software yeah. and the Omnis thing. Which how they which, figure that like, out. I don't know how they did that. I don't understand how they did that. But anyway, just talk about Omnis because I don't understand it. I thought that it was a software that gathered all the things. It's like an online software because they also set this whole thing up about people uploading well, stuff. Oh, I'm confused as to, so they code into the DNA of a bird, Omnis. Now, again, it's not explained well. It's only one scene, and it's dumped on you really quick, and then they're on to, like, finding out where Omnis is. So Omnis is either, they code into the bird the instructions to to unlock the software where they can find, like, an iCloud of all the, the works of the entire literature that they've compiled or the act what they're coding into the dna is the actual text of Which like everything really doesn't make sense because i'm like it's a bird like what is this bird and then but then they say they're gonna like this bird is gonna like reproduce and they're gonna like put the ominous in a bunch of different animals so that they can't it can't be traced like what why would you put it in animals yeah. who's gonna be able to like get this well i mean they'll like the animals They'll, cause they'll like it'll be everywhere, and you can like reproduce. And I mean, I guess you could what, do you're that. Gonna humans. Kill the animal, and then you eat it, and then the no, knowledge no. is inside you from the DNA. But it's unclear. But Omnis is either the coding in a DNA that will unlock this iCloud, or it is instructions for this iCloud, or it's instructions of how all these sections of the eels to link up in order to to share all their knowledge it's if you're not, not confused text us and tell me what it means or because or just go just, on with your life we don't really I'm care sorry, well, yeah, <laughs> I, it just, it's, if you're confused right now it's because the movie literally makes no sense mm-hmm. and the other thing too it's like for them to be consolidating this information in this one software or whatever we'll just call it but then to have the concept that everybody is memorizing a book just like in the book Fahrenheit 451. So in the book, people have become the literature because the firefighters can't burn the book if it's, you know, memorized, right? Yeah. But they have that concept also in the movie, but why would you need to do that if the Omnis is around? And the other thing well, that's really silly is that there's this kid who's supposed to be sort of probably on the spectrum of autism. And he's, they literally say that he's memorized over 13,000 books. And I'm sorry, but that is absolutely ridiculous. He's like a 13 year old kid and 13,000, like, I'm sorry, but I am a huge reader. I'm 26. I've probably not even read a thousand books. Like that is absolutely silly. To have not only read 13,000 books, but then to have memorized 13,000 books. Hey, the human mind I mean, is no, capable of... Come on. Yeah, but then no. again, to just undercut that with the... It, it's unnecessary because they have this right. software. Well, well, I think what they're trying to do was to connect... Because they have a bunch of people all over the world who have memorized one book. And I think the Omnis Other was... Other than this kid who's memorized right. 13,000. Uh, right. So... I think the Omnis was trying, but yeah, that's the thing. The movie felt like they needed to have this thing that they're going after and like trying to accomplish when 
at the end, the conclusion of the book is very, not necessarily anticlimactic, but it's a victory for Guy in a very different way. He, he He's not, he didn't destroy the world, essentially. Like, he's on the precipice of joining these group of people who can slowly, over years, rebuild society with yeah. their knowledge. But the movie is just like, no, we need to have a thing, and we need to, get, there's a ticking clock, and if we don't get this bird over to Canada, then the entire history of literature will be lost. Which, by the way, the bird is trying to get this to this place in Canada with a homing device that was stolen from the firefighters, which can obviously be traced. Right, that's back another to example the of bird, that. Like, yeah. what the hell? But then Michael B. Jordan's Montag character becomes a martyr, and Beatty actually kills Montag, which is very upsetting. It's up to interpretation. No, it's but not. Heavy, heavily, it is not. heavily implied that he kills him, but it's not confirmed. But. Then the bird flies out of this burning barn and then just disappears into this other flock of birds. And then never, it, it's like, well, the, so if the if the point of Omnis was to become this omnipresent DNA and all these birds, but also the bird had to get to Canada, then... Well, what, what what's going to make the bird fly to Canada? There's like right. It's unclear for two reasons. One, as we've already said, we don't know what the heck ominous is. No. And two, we don't know whether someone has to find the bird or it's okay. Like someone will eventually find it because it's framed in a very bittersweet, hopeful way. Where of course they the eels didn't complete their mission. But the birds still did escape, so Omnis is there somewhere. I don't know. Let's get let's get off this movie. I, I want to talk more about the book okay. a little bit. So I really did enjoy it. However, I think this is one of the very few examples where the book is too short. At, oh yeah. At 150 pages. I have the same comment. And of course. The opposite is also terrible when a book is too long and just keeps on going on and on and you're not interested. However, in the book, there are two big exposition dumps that are compelling, but they're exposition dumps nonetheless. Mm -hmm. That um, whole Beatty speech where he comes in, it's about 10 pages long and Beatty just explains everything. Yeah why the firemen do what they do, why society is working this certain way everything and it's like i was reading that and i was just thinking to myself guy should know this mm-hmm. like he he's never obviously he doesn't have any art or you know stimulation there are also no history books either but wouldn't have captain Beatty told him this already right, there, yeah because there's a there's like a handbook yeah sort of but Apparently, Guy has not read it. Yeah, so it's just this big speech, very informative for the reader, but it feels, it felt unnatural to me of this 10 page long just dump of information. Where I'm like, oh, in normal books, this would have been peppered, peppered throughout like maybe a couple chapters and this is just straight told us like these are firemen this is what we do this is why we think the way we are Mm -hmm. and it felt very on the nose because i mean it was exactly that it was just telling you what they are Mm -hmm. the second exposition dump happens when guy eventually escapes the city he's Mm -hmm. in and he meets the homeless group of philosophers and the Mm -hmm. keepers of the books and then transits thank you and then the same thing happens there where he explains what they do Mm -hmm. how they operate how their whole plan how 
you know, how they each are a book. And that's another 10 to 12 page speech. Very unnatural for someone in any society, any future or past to be talking for that long. For sure. And I'm like, again, this is something that you don't have to make it 300 pages of extra material, but maybe over a couple chapters, maybe have Guy chill with these transients and, you know, ask questions over a period of time instead of having it all happen at once. It, It didn't feel real, which... Perhaps that was Bradbury's intention. Like, perhaps at those points in the books, he was pointing out about how, hey, this is all a metaphor. This is all actually not really happening, and you're talking. But at the same time, it's like, this is a compelling enough narrative where I wouldn't mind it to be a little bit longer. Not too much. Like, don't go crazy. Yeah. But 150 pages, I mean, that's that's nothing. Yeah, it's really quick. I agree. I think, again, the reason I might walk back this book from my top, let's say 20 favorite books of all time, is because I actually want a lot more background about Baby. I actually don't think that there's enough character development. I know that he's supposed to be the mouth of the oppressive government, but I think the movie flirted with that idea that he maybe had also gone through the questioning that Montag is currently. But why is Beatty able to, off the top of his head, quote everybody from Shakespeare to Marcus Aurelius to Plato to Jonathan Swift? Mm -hmm. You know, why are captains told these things to keep their underlings oppressed? I just wanted a little bit more Mm -hmm. from that storyline because... I just don't quite understand Beatty's motivation. Another kind of minor question that I had, and this is for the book and the movie, but how is Montag literate? Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I think like he watches the news. Everyone watches the news of that the uh, government, of course, sure. produces for them. And the manuals, they know how to read the manuals. Well, see, exactly. And that's why I'm a little bit confused because Beatty talks to Montag about how they start this indoctrination very young, but how they take all of the writing and literature away from the students. And they, you know, he talks about how the younger they can get them, the earlier they can take all of this information and basically stuff them so full of unimportant information that they're overstimulated and they can't take anything else in and they can't question anything. So I just, I don't understand how that schedule of overstimulation also allows for them to become literate. And if they ultimately want literature to become completely obsolete, why would they ever even consider allowing citizens to even begin to learn how to read? That's a, that to me is very strange. That's and a I, good point. And I know that even Mildred can read because her and Montag read together Yeah. when he finally takes the books down. So that actually is a consistency error, I think, that, that it really bugged me. And that's, again, it's a flaw of the book, I think, and it's a flaw in the movie. I just, I just don't see how those two ideas... And that actually speaks to a little bit of an interesting concept in the book uh the concept of time Mm. and how i think it's very strangely manipulated because when bd talks to montag a lot of times he explains things like oh 500 years ago 
oh, during the Civil War, all these things, far before you were born, you know. I think that that must be a tactic of the oppressive government to make people forget or to make people feel like they've just been living this way for so long that it's not worth turning back to. But then Faber, which is the other sort of mentor character in the book who's not in the movie, he's old, he's maybe 60, but you know, he was probably born around like our time now. So it's, yeah. it can't be 500 years in the future. There are these wars that are referenced in the book. And I think what makes more sense is that Montag grew up in a normal society. And then through some kind of indoctrination, you know, he learned how to read, he learned how to write, he met his wife. Remember, he, he remembers they met in Chicago. So he got to a certain point of a normal, quote unquote, life. And then sort of a an apocalyptic something happened and through i don't know drugs or something like that all of these memories were suppressed mm. like that to me makes more sense it just doesn't make sense for me that 500 years in the future they taught people how to read but they also completely turned their backs on written literature yeah that, yeah and in the like book they're flirting with fire pun intended because they allow firemen to hold a book for 24 hours before they incinerate it which i'm like of course problems are going to arise from that so that's another inconsistency but you mentioned captain Beatty, and something that was really compelling in the book was his death because as as (laughs) guy ruminates as he's you know running away after he kills him is that Beatty didn't stop me. Yeah. He's like, he, Beatty wanted to die. Yeah. Steps could have been made. He could have had the robot dog bite or stop right. Guy before he did it. But and, then... And, and Guy notices, too, that they wouldn't have put a lethal weapon in his hands. Right. Exa- exactly. he was on the edge. Right. Thank you for remembering that, because that, that that's the crucial piece. He's like... He gave me a loaded weapon. He stood right in front of me, which is very compelling where it's like, even with him, Beatty, spouting all this nonsense about why books need to be burned, I think he secretly felt the way Guy felt of like, no, I'm actually not happy. This is all, this is all BS. This whole uniformity is actually terrible. I have no original thoughts. I have no emotion. There, there's nothing, there's no reason for me to exist. And that that's really compelling of Beatty taking the opportunity to commit suicide, essentially, by stepping in front of Guy mm-hmm. and basically taunting him until Guy relents and kills him. I mean, that that's cool. And that's what I thought the movie yeah. was going for because the movie drops these little hints well, they're not hints, they're scenes where yeah. Beatty is secretly writing down quotes from other books or quotes that he's coming up by himself. Right. He has a secret pen and he realizes that he can write on his cigarette papers. Right. So that like four scenes of him writing on those cigarette right. papers. And I'm like, oh, this is leading somewhere. When yeah. when they finally confront the same things that's gonna happen in the book, Guy is going to kill Beatty. But no, that doesn't happen. Beatty survives. And then in their final confrontation in the barn, I'm like, oh, Beatty is going to let Guy escape. And that kind of happens since he lets the bird with the freaking ominous, whatever the heck that is, escape. 
but then he essentially kills Guy anyways, even though it's been hinted at that Beatty is on his side. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the thing. It's also left up to, to interpretation, so you don't really know, but it's not satisfying because you have four scenes of Beatty writing down information for what? Like, w- what was the reason why? I guess that added dimension to him, but it was dimension that never paid off. Completely diminished Right. And if he had, I'm I'm not defending suicide in any way, but I think it would have been conceptually, it would have made more sense for him to either kill himself or tell Montag to kill him. Right. Or like join the eels. Yeah. Or run away with the eels or something like that. Because yeah, it, it just multiple times there was this double entendre speak where it was like he was spouting nonsense and oppressive language, but in his eyes, you could sort of see him challenging Montag. He was, you know, like, read between the lines, man. Like, yeah. I'm trying to tell you that I'm questioning it too. And and then there was the paper writing. And it's like, what made him memorize these things? He's clearly looked at books yeah. if he knows these things. And you know, he writes them down, but then he burns them. So he's clearly conflicted. But then where's the payout? Like, what does it mean? And, and again, I just feel like the book should have developed his character more so we could understand where he was coming from. And the movie flirted with that, but did not execute. And it didn't add anything eventually because he just kills Montauk. It's just like, what? My guess is that just as they cut out the Mildred character, maybe they cut out that part of the story. Because, I mean, clearly the movie has pacing problems. So if the movie felt slow at 140 minutes, just imagine a longer movie. Right. It's oddly action-packed for such a slow movie. Yeah. Like, there's a lot that goes on. But I feel like I was doing so much mental... I was doing so many mental somersaults to try to figure out what was going on Yeah. that I was exhausted by the halfway mark. Seriously, there Same. were a couple times where we paused it because, I don't know, I had to go to the bathroom or something happened. And I would look at the bar and I was like, what? We're only halfway through. Like, I'm so done with this movie. I mean, it also felt so slow because of all the cliches that we've mentioned before. Yeah, just, there was nothing... Ugh. Yeah. Any closing thoughts? Uh, Gosh, let me look at my notes. Yeah, I don't know. These these might be a little bit fragmented, but since we were just talking about Beatty, I actually thought that the way that he was set up as more of a mentor in the beginning of the movie was actually really nice. I think that actually made a better connection because I think it made it way too easy for Montag to question Beatty in the book. Yeah. Because he was obviously the enemy and the mouthpiece for the oppressive government. So I thought that their relationship earlier in the movie was nice because it made it a harder decision for Montag to question him. Yeah. That was nice. I also thought that, oh, this was something I was going to talk about earlier, but I'll kind of skim through it. I think it, the movie almost asks a very interesting question about whether cancel culture is appropriate. And after reading a lot about it, because when cancel culture sort of became a thing, I was all about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I am all about forgetting toxic or whitewashed 
ideas. I think that those things don't really, I used to think those things didn't really need to be talked about anymore. I really just wanted to like leave them in the past and completely move on from things like that. However, I read this very interesting article, which I don't know, I guess if people are interested in it, I can post it on the Facebook, but I read this interesting article about the removal of Winnipero Sarah statues around Los Angeles in California. And just for some background, I know this is a little bit random, but he was a missionary that was very oppressive to Native Americans and in the 1800s and was part of the mission building all up and down the coast of California. And there have been a lot of calls to remove his statue because obviously he was a very toxic representation of the Christian and Catholic church. So this article that I read asked a few people what should happen to these statues. And their answer was, we shouldn't completely cancel culture him. We shouldn't destroy these statues. These statues should be put into context so that when we're looking back at the history, we can see that by whitewashing culture and destroying, which is a lot of what the book talks about, mm -hmm. taking away culture from people who didn't do anything to deserve that is horrific and we need to not repeat that in the future. So putting those statues into context means that we can learn from the past. And that really changed my perspective on cancel culture uh, in a lot of ways. I think, for example, you mentioned JK Rowling and that's something that I'm still struggling with because you know, do we cancel the art? Do we cancel the artist? Do we put that into context and learn for the future? So I think, again, this whole idea of cancel culture sort of came up in the movie. And that's a really interesting conversation to have. So that was something yeah. that I kind of pulled out of the movie. Um, yeah, sorry. that's so a that great... Took us down a no, bit of that's a great... I mean, path, yeah, we but... could have a whole episode on just that. And I certainly have a lot of thoughts on that, too. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think art should be canceled. I think you should cancel the artist, sure. Mm -hmm. And context is always key, always mm -hmm. key. So, amen. But I wish... <laughs> Which the movie did a little bit better job. I mean, it's clear now that we didn't like it. But yeah. like liked the book, the cinematography is not great, too. It's all yellows and dark greens. It's not really great. So yeah, I feel bad about this episode. I hope it's, a, it's easier to follow when you listen back to it. <laughs> I feel like I kind of uh, maybe mushed up some of the concepts. Oh, yeah. No, it's fine. I mean, Fahrenheit 451 has a ton of concepts, so... Props yeah, to Ray Bur something, Bradbury. Something we didn't even talk about was the subtle racism mm. in the movie that totally came up when Guy Montag was basically the only black person in the whole movie. And then when he started questioning the government, they, people started calling him boy. People started saying, well, Michael Shannon uses the N-word um, when, when describing, he's discussing yeah. a book. But... But there's a lot of very subtle sort of microaggressions that start coming out. And so it's like, it's okay for him to be black when he's acting correctly. But as soon as he starts questioning the culture around him, people start targeting him more. And I thought that was actually a really interesting, very subtle way of talking about race in America. Yeah. But it wasn't a huge conversation, and it also wasn't really resolved by the end of the movie. Yep, that's the thesis for the whole so. movie. A bunch of interesting <laughs> ideas, none of them resolved or taken to their full potential. Yeah. So, yeah. 
bad stinker movie. stinker bad movie uh let's do movie first one star for one me star. the acting is good some of the concepts are good the acting but... of two people <laughs> sure uh yeah <laughs> why not uh, yeah one star for the movie the book yeah i mean it's profound and exciting but i really can't get over how it feels like a third of a book in some, in some book it's like a chapter of a stephen king book basically yeah, yeah. so uh yeah i mean i just i really can't get over that so three out of four for me yeah i would say three out of four and put this book into the context of when it was written because i think it has a lot of flaws being short is one of them, being sexist, being racist is one of them, or a couple more of them. So, but there's a lot to get out of this book. So mm -hmm. just go in knowing that you might be dissatisfied with some aspects, but I do think it's an important book to read. Right. So three out of four. <laughs> awesome. Well... I hope we'll see you. Yeah, I hope we'll see you at the weekly book burning. Uh, again, our address is one, three. Uh, we'll see you then. Thank you for listening so much. And book them, Daniel. That's me. I'm like, Danny. Is it, was it Dano or Daniel? Dano. Dano? Yeah. Oh, I was. We're trying to wrap up the podcast yeah. in a different way. Well, we'll, we'll get it one day, yeah. but we'll see you on the next one.